Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Suffering and love are intertwined. That is the Christian path. And I think the best of Christianity. It's not so much, I'm going to endure here these sufferings because I'll have a better life in heaven. It is rather that when I embrace my suffering, I can get out of my selfishness because I real I can open up my eyes to realize others are suffering too. Hello, I'm Sean Illing, co-host of The Way Through. This summer, Seagal Samuel and I are taking turns talking to spiritual leaders, philosophers, and occasionally historians who can help us put our biggest questions in a larger context and hopefully find something meaningful in this challenging moment. My guest today is Sister Ilia Delio, a Franciscan nun, an author, an activist, and a Catholic theologian. She might be the world's most interesting nun. Trained as a biologist, she went on to get a PhD in pharmacology before deciding to join a monastery and give her life over to the church. Now she writes about Christianity, evolution, neuroscience, and the metaphysics of love. If there's a theme that ties all of these episodes together so far, it's suffering. Almost every faith tradition has something worthwhile to say about suffering, just as every ethical tradition does. But the Catholic tradition in particular is rich terrain on this topic, so I wanted to dive deep with someone who could speak to that. In this conversation, we talk about why Delio thinks the essence of Christianity is, in her words, to suffer through to joy, and why she believes Christianity has become separated from the flesh and blood world, the world of real pain and real loss. As I tell her at the beginning, I was raised Catholic, but the faith never quite stuck. And yet, despite some of my skepticism, there's a version of Christianity that has always appealed to me, and Delio expresses it as well as anyone can. I really enjoyed this exchange, and I took a lot from it. I hope you do too. So here's my conversation with Sister Ilya Delio. Sister Elia Dilio, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'll start by saying I'm excited, but also, frankly, a little nervous about this <laughs> conversation. I've had a, a mixed relationship with Christianity in my life. I was raised mm-hmm. Catholic, but it didn't stick. And <laughs> then, of course, I had my militant atheism phase and I've since evolved out of that and, and come to, to view religion very differently and much more nuanced. And, and I can see the, the value and the beauty in it. And I'm not sure where this conversation will go. I'm, we'll probably disagree about a few things or maybe we won't disagree at all. But as with all of these shows, I'm here to listen in, in good faith and learn from you and your tradition, which has a lot to say about love and, and suffering and, and solidarity. And before we get into the hard stuff, I want to give listeners a sense of who you are. You've lived a, a very interesting life. You were trained as a biologist. You went on to get a PhD in pharmacology. So how in the world did you end up a nun? What, what called you <laughs> to the church? What called you to Christ? What called you to this life? You know, ever since I was a kid, I, I always had this fascination with God, quite honestly. And I would talk to God, you know, as a child. And a, voc- a religious vocation is very hard to put into words because there's not another person. I mean, when you fall in love with another person, it's pretty obvious, you know, that, yeah, this works. So, you know, we'll get married. But, you know, falling in love with God is not so easy to explain to people. <laughs> So I've always wanted to, in a sense, be with God, you know, in, in a sense of a wholehearted being with God type thing. And uh, my parents were deeply opposed to it. So I uh, <clears throat> stayed in school as long as possible. And then when 
I finished a doctorate in pharmacology. My area was neuro, neuropharmacology. I took the plunge and told them I was entering a, a monastery of contemplative nuns. And they thought that either I was brainwashed, um, inhaled too many chemicals in the labs, or was having a nervous breakdown. Um, so they were deeply distressed, as were my friends, because I was very engaged in the world, very politically minded, um, social justice. I was all about revolution. At one time, I was a follower of Trotsky. So, you know, I mean, it. Yeah, it's, I've gone yes. from one extreme to the other. Anyway, all this to say is, um, you know, there's a mystery to each person. And um, falling in love with the person who helps complete that mystery, I think, is what love is about. And for me, that's God. How many years did you spend in the monastery? I was four years uh, in a very traditional uh, monastery, uh, cloistered. I literally went from a life of academia to a life of forming and prayer. Uh, and that's what we did for, you know, 24 seven when we weren't sleeping. So four years, then I graduated. <laughs> um, I figure I had a four year degree in monastic life. Um, it was two things. One, it was too withdrawn from the world. I realized that I really loved the world and the world is good. You know, it's crazy, but it's good. And, you know, um, <clears throat> In the Gospel of John, the writer says, you know, God so loved the world that God sent God's only son. So if God loved the world, why are we leaving the world? So I had a hard time with the radical withdrawal from the world. You know, I, I was very idealistic, the romantic, um, ascetic type. Um, but having lived that for a few years, I, I got that out of my system. <laughs> and I was able to take the leap over the wall back into the world. Well, here's a counterpoint to that claim that the world is good. And I'm going to throw a quote of yours back at you as, I guess, a kind of opening foray here. And you wrote in one of your articles, and I'll just quote it, that hell may be an apt description of the chaos of our age. What did you mean by yeah. that? What does that mean? Yeah. And I think hell is precisely that. I think it's utter chaos. It's darkness. It's confusion. It is um, that disorientation. But to say that, to say that hell is utter chaos, that is the radical disconnected connection of all we are, does not negate the fact that the world is essentially good. So I would say that underneath chaos is not an ontological concrete something, you know, it's not the end in itself. And maybe that's what I want to say. If chaos were the utter end, we wouldn't be here, uh, certainly in an evolutionary world where it's marked by a lot years of chaos, you know, decades of chaos. So I do think that there's a fragility and unfinishedness to what we are. And therefore, hell it, hell will always be mixed a little bit with heaven until we eventually can break through, I think, into the fullness of the good, um, which I do believe in. You know, I don't know if it would happen entirely in a contingent finite world, where there's always limits. So wherever there are limits, there's always going to be a bit of hell, right? There's always going to be breakdown. There's always going to be chaos. But I do believe in, in an ultimate goodness. Well, hell is such an interesting word choice. I mean, there's, I guess there's a, there's a, there's a dumb way to think of concepts like hell and heaven. And there's a, a much more interesting way to think about concepts like hell and heaven. You can think of hell and heaven as you know, physical spaces above or below, uh, but you can also think of, of hell as states of being, as states of mind, emotional states. Right. Maybe it would be useful for you to just kind of say a little bit more about what sure. those two words mean to you. What, is it, what does it mean to live in hell? You know, when we use those terms, heaven and hell, and we associate them with places, I think we can thank Dante for that. You know, I think that's really where the equation of a heaven and hell and place, you know, come into focus. And of course, we can always thank Plato, you know, ultimately, um, for at least luring us to the fact that this world is a limited good. And really, it sucks. So really, the world that's really good is not here. And so it's the not here world that we, you know, made into heaven. Well, actually, that's not what the Bible says. I mean, the biblical notion of heaven is the openness of earth to its fulfillment. Um, and so heaven and earth are two sides of the same coin, right? It's the openness of earth to what it can become in God. 
and and therefore, if if heaven is the openness of earth to what it can become, hell is the closeness of earth. It's when earth collapses in on itself um, in the kind of that existential d- despair, uh, the no exit, you know, of Sartre. Uh, and that, I think, is a better way to look at heaven and hell as dimensions of, of earthly life, uh, which then becomes, yes, um, part of our consciousness, part of our psychological being. All this to say is, you can have all the material goods in the world. You can live in the, you know, McMansion and McMansions, uh, drive the greatest of Ferraris, and you can be living in hell uh, because you feel cut off, right? You feel unloved. You feel rejected. You feel misunderstood. Or contrary, you can live in a hut, right? In a hovel and wherever, but you have family, you have support, you have love, you know that you belong and you can have a taste of heaven. And so I think these terms are, they're misused and they've locked us in to a very binary way of thinking that there's heaven and then there's hell or there's earth and then there's heaven when it's not binary at all, right? We're constantly living in a complexity of um, heaven and hell insofar as we're always somehow uh, immersed in disorder and yearning for that new order or love or the good. Um, and so that's how I would see them. Of course, Sartre famously said that hell is other people. And I, 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 <laughs> right. given what I know about, about you and your, your faith, I take it that's not your view of it. Oh, believe me, it is. <laughs> <laughs> is that right? You know, and the, and the truth is we're so deeply interconnected. I mean, this is a lot of what I write about these days. And I think by saying that, I'm not, I'm not, that's not a new agey statement, but I mean, if we go back to what physics is telling us at the, at the core, at the fundamental roots of our lives, the fundamental layers is, is deep interconnectedness. And so we are, whether or not we want to be connected, that's a different story, but we are fundamentally connected. And I do think that we are essentially relational beings. That's our deepest um, reality. And therefore, because we are relational beings, um, people are, you know, sometimes the hell of our lives because we, we are not living. We, we don't know how to live. We, uh, they drive us crazy for all sorts of reasons, right? They can disrupt that relational core in ourselves. And so um, I, I would agree with that. And I think what we're constantly yearning for is, you know, to put that in the uh, a term that's often used, right relationship, you know, a relationship that 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 fits uh, the welfare of our beingness, that we can flourish together, you know, in life. Well, let's talk about the world right now, how fear and fragility go together, and how people right now are hurting and having a hard time holding their lives together. And you wrote that there's a there's a deep hurt right now, a hurt that reflects a kind of existential pain that only comes from a lack of love and respect. And mm-hmm. I'd love for you to just expound on, on that a little bit. Absolutely. I, I think religion has played an unfortunately negative role in producing a lot of this disconnect for a whole host of reasons. Um, one being that it has not... Really, and here I'm going to talk from Christianity. Um, you know, the whole of Christianity is about, is about love and relationship. That's really the fundamental roots of it, right? Um, this this divine power entering into um, uh, humanity and loving us into a new future. But we have made it into a patriarchal, ontologically distinct religion where it's it's radically, in some ways, disconnected us. And I think. Several things I see today is we lack a common narrative. We don't have a myth that binds us. So we have all sorts of myths that are sometimes conflicting with one another. Uh, The Christian myth is, you know, join us, you'll be saved, you'll go to heaven, God will love you. Um, You know, the Buddhists have another myth, get over your fractured self, you know, contemplate, you know, a selfless self. So religion has become unhelpful to the fact that we need something that binds us together. And yet, in my view, without a religious core, and I mean a deep, like an umbilical cord core, uh, we have nothing that binds us together. And so our fear, we have a lot of fear and distrust of one another. We have a lot of anger 
a, a lot of deep hurt. And uh, the reason I think we can't get beyond these things is because they're neither political, they're not just historical. History is, in a sense, how these events transpire. Um, they're not just social. They are deeply rooted um, existential disconnects that are that I think stem from a lack of viable religious core beingness. And by saying this, I have in mind how the ancients, and, and here I mean archaic religions, if you go back to um, what we might call pre-axial consciousness, uh, where it was a consciousness that the gods and you know the spirits in nature and the spirits in myself and the spirits in my community were all flowing, you might say, in harmony. And the harmony of the spiritual life was the harmony of the political life, the harmony of social life. But we've lost that, that spiritual uh, cord. We have all different religions. We have con conflicts. And basically, we have a religion. Like, who needs religion, right? Because it's a, it's a disaster, and it's just conflicting. And we have nothing that holds us together. We are a people without glue, without gravity. Um, and we're just, you know, floating. And, like, you know, we're just waiting to just maybe fly off into space at some point or just collapse. But we're living on a precipice, quite honestly. We can't stay here. We're definitely going to talk about what you think Christianity ought to look like. But since you you brought it up, I'll, I'll ask you now, why do you think the church, the Christian church in particular, lost its way? How did it cease to be that glue of which you just spoke a second ago? Right. You know, the first thousand years of Christianity, I mean, Christianity built basically Western Europe for sure. Um, and out of Western Europe, if I'm just going to limit it there for the moment, you know, comes the sciences, comes politics, comes economics. And so Christianity was a bedrock. Um, and for good, you know, why has it become undone? Several reasons. Um, my principal reason is that once Christianity dismissed modern science, in other words, I, th I take the Galileo affair as a watershed um, in the unraveling of Christianity from the matrix of life. Um, up to the Middle Ages, uh, you see um, an incredible, in a sense, interweaving of religion, of, of, of the human spirit, of creativity, of the mechanical arts. I mean, in other words, the human person at work in the world uh, knew oneself to belong to a whole that, you know, they believed to be God at the heart of that whole. And there was a purpose to, to doing what they were doing, you know, if they were a carpenter or a woodsmith. But once, you know, Christianity made an unfortunate, and here I'm going to speak, yeah, I think we could say Catholic and Protestant because, well, here for the Catholic side, once they consolidated Thomas Aquinas as the theologian, the, you know, and therefore eliminated all theologies, um, they, they stifle theology. In other words, theology itself cannot, cannot develop like science developed. Um, second, I think, uh, again, <clears throat> it re remained in the ancient Ptolemaic cosmos. So Christianity, like truthfully all world religions, they're, they're basically working out of an old cosmological paradigm that no longer fits our needs. So um, Christianity does not have a viable cosmology to support its theology. And third, if I might add this, it is a deeply patriarchal structure. And a deeply patriarchal structure, um, really where ontology plays a significant role. In other words, male being is superior to female being. White being is superior to black being. So, you know, these ontologies have been woven in uh, in a complex way over time. And therefore, Christianity, unfortunately, has become, in a sense, irrelevant to the future of the world when in fact it has such a rich tradition that can, you know, repackage, revive, I think, play a critical role in the future. I, I think there's a pretty strong case that, that Christianity was co-opted by the world it helped to shape. And there's a line in one of the articles you wrote where you, you said that, and I'll quote, human dignity has become a commodity. Where there is no love, all hell literally breaks loose because without love, no one cares whether we live or die. Now, I read that and hearing your 
you talk about Trotsky a second ago, I feel <laughs> I feel justified in my reading, but I read that as a a pretty frontal indictment of of capitalist culture. And I use the word culture deliberately because capitalism is much more than an economic system. It's right. also an ideology. It's also a, a system of morality, a way of life. But I don't want to put words in your mouth. So what did you mean by that? <laughs> I do think that, again, the unraveling of religion from culture has left the human person today uh, vulnerable and uh, basically uh, an object of commodi- you know, a commodified object. Um, because there's nothing, again, without anything that binds us to anything deeper than ourselves, we're at the whims of whatever our desires are. So I think the human person is being completely uh, deconstructed right now. And I think technology, in some ways, is trying to reconstruct uh, human personhood. Um, And so I would say this, I think we are made for love. That's about as simple as you can say it. And by love, I don't mean just the emotion of love. I mean, in a sense, what Aristotle had in terms of the flourishing of life. Love as that deep companionship relationship in the flourishing of life, Uh, a unitive love. And therefore, that we have basically, we have enervated love, we've siphoned it out of the human person. I mean, the deep rootedness of love. There's a mystery to human personhood um, because that that love, I think, that defines what we are is not just falling in and out of a relationship. There's something much deeper there that we're yearning and longing for, but we have sold it out, you know, and we've sold it down the stream. And I think, you know, in a sense, in this way, we, we are reducing the preciousness of personhood to, in a sense, the commodified masses. Uh, which then can be bought, sold, uh, repackaged through technology, transhumanism, downloaded. Uh, who cares, right? Um, what defines us anymore as person? What really, you know, what makes us worthy to continue on? Or should we just not continue on and maybe end this species? We are ending it, by the way. We're, we're in evolution that I'm positive of. And the question is not, will we come to an end? The question is, what are we going to become as a species? Well, that loss of love, I think, manifests as, as disconnectedness. And disconnectedness, I think, results in a lot of suffering. Yes. And as you know, of course, the Catholic tradition has a lot to say about, about suffering. And, and yes. so I think now is a good time to, to pivot into that as we kind of make our way towards what I think a richer... Re- revitalized Christianity might look like. But, yes. but, but first I'll ask you, how do you, with your faith, make sense of all the profound suffering in the world right now and just in general? Yes, right. Um, our experience right now is indeed one of, you know, of, of, of suffering around the globe and certainly here in our own uh, U.S. But I want to say this, there has never been an age without suffering, you know, and it would be, it would be naive of us to think that there was a time in the past, you know, where suffering did not exist. So we suffer. And yet part of that suffering is the fact that we're not finished. We're incomplete in a sense, in the sense that we're becoming something more. There's an openness to our beingness, right? Um, We suffer because life is fragile. Life has limits. These limits, sometimes they're like fine bone China. And they just break down. And we can't keep logically explaining the suffering of our lives. I don't think suffering is as much the problem and the way it insofar as several things. One, our ability to multiply suffering by imposing it on ourselves and others. Second, the inability to really be compassionate. In other words, to feel the sufferings of others and to be with them in their sufferings. And third, I think, you know, because we're such an individualistic culture, uh, in a sense, a, a, a me culture, suffering becomes all about me, when in fact, suffering can become a door to new insights, you know, maybe reshape our priorities. Uh, I think of, you know, I love the book Tuesdays with Maury, where... You know, he was high flying in his career and then develops 
uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, and he realizes as he is, in a sense, moving into the final phases of life, that his priorities were off. And, you know, so I think suffering can be a window into, into the light of love, quite honestly. And suffering and love are intertwined. And that, that is the Christian path. Uh, and I think the best of Christianity. It's not so much, I'm going to endure here these sufferings because I'll have a better life in heaven. It is rather that when I embrace my suffering, I can get out of my selfishness because I real I can open up my eyes to realize others are suffering too. And suffering can be a form of solidarity with others. And that's liberating. That actually is redemption. Why do you think God permits all of this suffering? Or, or maybe to ask that another way, what does it mean to love God? Or what does it mean to love a world in which suffering is the rule, not the exception? Yeah, right. So, you know, again, I guess this goes to my own revisioning of Christian theology. And I think when we use that language of God and suffering, and certainly what we call the theodicy question, right? Why does a good God allow suffering uh, to exist? When in fact, that's not at all what, you know, it's not like God said, hey, you know, I like this group, but I'm going to make them suffer to really love me. Uh, that's... Uh, you know, that's a caricature of God. I think God, first of all, the name itself points to a power of absolute love, absolute being in love, that horizon of our own lives. And so there's there's two things. One, God is the absolute beingness of love, is the ultimate depth of our lives. Um, so God is not something apart from me. God's like, not like a big, big me, you know, over me. God is the God is the breadth, the depth, and the future of everything that exists, including my life and your life and every life. Um, second, um, God, uh, I think God shares God's life. And I think that, and in this way, you know, when we talk about beingness, there is an infinite mystery to us. And I think I take that infinite mystery, in a sense, as the beingness of God's life entangled with my life. And so therefore, God does not, uh, God knows only love. And therefore, I don't think God causes suffering. I don't think God says, yeah, let them suffer. I think God is that power of love when we suffer. In other words, we're going to suffer with or without God, whether or not we believe in God. But what suffering does in relation to God, it can open up that power of God within us to realize we're not suffering alone. That there is an, that's a, there's a, an infinite power, a divine power here that suffers with us. So I don't think that God is immune to suffering, like, you know, somehow sitting in a corner of heaven and keeping score on how we're doing. I think God is the co-sufferer with us because God uh, desires our fullness of life. And therefore what we find certainly through the great saints, uh, you know, of the Christian tradition is that they actually sought suffering believe it or not, you know, where we're trying to always evade suffering. They were constantly looking for suffering because for them to suffer well with God was the highest expression of love. And that's the mystery. Like, so we're trying, we're constantly trying to avoid suffering when in fact, if we embrace the suffering, the fragile limits of our lives um, and find in that suffering a path to love in a deeper way, uh, a more connected way, that's our freedom. And that's actually the path to the fullness of life. Um, the, the medieval theologian Bonaventure, Franciscan theologian, said, there is no other path into God than through the burning love of the crucified. And to an outsider, that would be like, what? Burning love of a cross? Are you kidding? I mean, that sounds like the KKK, you know. Uh, and that's not at all what Bonaventure had in mind. He was like, this is a love unto death for the sake of life. And, you know, the, the best analogy is a parent, you know, a parent who truly wants uh, the best of life for their kid, right? And, and they will do anything for them. And, you know, the kid is, I mean, for example, I have a colleague uh, whose daughter, um, she's Russian, they're in, in a Russian hospital, and the daughter has cancer. And she's undergoing chemotherapy now for the second time around. She's 10 years old. And the mother is by her side day in, day out, actually doing all her academic work from the bedside. 
And, and that's, that's an analogy with God, right? God is with us in our suffering. Uh, God can't remove that. God, that's, so if God were not absolute love, God would not be absolutely free. We are created absolutely free in love. Uh, so otherwise we'd have a dictator God, right? Like, you know, we'd have a God say, oh yeah, I'm going to fix this up, you know, because they belong to me. Um, now this is a God who is like the parent, deeply in love with, you know, with their child. Uh, will do anything it takes for that child to get well, but cannot, you know, in a sense, cannot do what chemotherapy, he has to, God has to let be what is. And, and, you know, it's a mystery. Some kids die early, right? So, you know, life, and there's, there's no logical answer to why death can be extinguished abruptly, you know, in a 9-11, in a, in a child with chemotherapy, this is not a God who says, yeah, you lived a lousy life, so I'm taking your kid. This is a God who is with us. And even in that death and suffering, we have to find that power of love in a new way because others are suffering as well. So all this to say is God does not cause suffering. God empowers us through suffering into a higher level of love if we are open to that love. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent... You want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. You have an interesting line where you, you write that to suffer through to joy is the essence of Christianity. And I'd love to know what you mean by that, because I think it's a very different vision of Christianity than most people practice. I, I think, yes. I think, I think a lot of people take Christianity as a means of spiritualizing suffering or a means of turning suffering into some kind of virtue. Absolutely. Or, or yeah. even, even conceiving of it as a kind of punishment from God yes. because of our, our fallenness or our wicked right. nature or, or, or whatever. Stuff. And, and <laughs> that is not, that is not what I hear from you. No. And truthfully, it's not the, it's really not the essence of Christianity. All of that's the add-ons, you know, as Christianity got constructed over the centuries. So I take those, those kind of myths that, you know, we're here to suffer, or if we suffer here, you know, and endure sufferings, so we're going to have a better life there, or God just doesn't like us and wants us to suffer. None of it is, it's ridiculous, quite honestly. Um, look, you know, we suffer and we suffer through, to suffer through uh, just taking that phrase means um, I can do two things. I can try to run away from my sufferings. I can make believe they don't exist. I can take, you know, I can take drugs. I can drink myself to death and try to, you know, eliminate it. But it won't do anything. We know these drinking and drugs get us nowhere. But I can, in a sense, when I say embrace suffering, I mean just embrace the limits of where I am in this moment. I can take myself, I have a concussion from a bike accident. You know, it's really limited me this summer. Um, I really, I didn't even know if I would have a brain by the end of this summer. I could have just, you know, been really angry with everything. I could have resented the fact that I had this accident, but I basically let go and leaned in to where I am in this moment. And believe it or not, I've had a better summer. I've slowed down. I've been able to be more attentive to people. Embracing suffering into joy means allowing that suffering to open up parts of our lives that we keep those doors shut otherwise because we're so in control of our lives. 
And that's what suffering does. It releases the, the locks of control that we place on our own lives. And it says, well, maybe you're not so much in control. Uh, maybe you can open up some windows here and see other people with new eyes, you know, and learn to, you know, learn to be with them in new ways. And that's joyful because, because we don't even know sometimes how we condition ourselves in our very highly controlled individualistic lives, right? Who we let into our lives, who we let out of our lives, you know, who we're going to talk to, who not. And the fact is suffering changes all that for us. You quote a theologian whose name I cannot remember, but he or she said that all that can be said about God is said in the cross. And that seems to me a very beautiful distillation. Jürgen Moltmann. Jürgen Moltmann um, is a German theologian who, you know, lived through World War II and, and, and in that war lost friends and family to the atrocities of the Holocaust and, and the whole thing of Nazism. And, you know, he writes in the beginning of one of his books how he sat, he, he was a Christian, a Lutheran, I think he's Lutheran, you know, sat for months before the cross and saying, what kind of God are you? You know, because many of the Nazis were Christians, right? So many of them, you know, their day job was at the concentration camps, right? You know, buy honey, going to work nine to five in the ovens. It's like, what? I mean, this is outrageous, outrageous. So either God was just simply an outrageous, you know, um, um, most evil thing possible, or or Moltmann was saying, I've missed something here, you know? And the question was, is God, is God suffering with, you know, did God suffer with my friends? And so he meditated for months on the cross of, of Jesus Christ and realized that, A, God is not, you know, distant from suffering. It's, this is not a God who's apathetic, right? Who doesn't feel our sufferings. This is a God who is deeply immersed in sufferings of our life as a co-sufferer. Um, and now putting it in my own language, not Maltmans, you know, God again suffers, have an abundance of love uh, as it's a co-sufferer and um, feels us in our woundedness. And that our job in a sense is to wake up to that co-suffering love. Uh, but this is the type of God we're talking about with the Christian God. And so all these ideas, these images of God as this masterful architect or, you know, the super grandfather uh, image, um, you know, pie, you know, the guy who's up there playing earth chess uh, is erroneous. I mean, that's what Tara is saying. The only thing we really can say about God is what we really see in that cross of, of Christ. And, you know, uh, people would say, well, Jesus died for my sins. Uh, well, no, Jesus really died out of love. I mean, Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. There was nothing that said, yes, you must die on this cross if you want to be the son of God. Jesus felt this deep call, in a sense, a listening to what God was calling him to and felt the need to, to give his whole life, you know, wholeheartedly, um, for out of love, you know, for the sake of God's covenant. And it's an example of what we are. So the whole point of the cross and to say, this is what God is like. God is not greater than God is in this cross. You know, if we truly believe that in, in Jesus, God truly was present, then we're saying God is not greater than this crucified Christ. God is not more powerful than this crucified Christ. God is, you know, all that can be said of God is said here just in the same way as all that can be said of God is said here, now, too, in my life and your life. And we have made God into a caricature of something that's like a Zeus God, you know. Um, and we're so locked into Plato's world. I, this is our, I think, a fundamental problem. <laughs> we're so locked into Greek philosophical ideas about gods. We can't really get to the Christian God. And, and so really what I want to get at is it's not that Christianity has failed. I don't think we've ever really found the Christian God yet. Many people have pointed to this God. But that's, I think, part of our challenge today, not to ditch God, but to find who this God is, who, who has loved in such a way that God loves us in suffering 
through suffering and remains with us as we suffer through into something more, something new, a new future in love. I find this, the kind of Christianity you're, you're talking about or the, the kind of Christ you're talking about is so powerful to me. And, you know, I, Nietzsche had this great line. Of course, you know, Nietzsche is one of the great critics of, of, of religion. But oddly enough, in his book called Antichrist, he has one of the most beautiful accounts of Christ ever written. And he has this line where he says, you know, there was but one Christian and he died on the cross. Yeah. Part of what he meant by that is something close to what you're saying now, which is that once the church was formed, it became more about ideas than about action, than about orientation to, to the world. And that is, I think, a huge loss for the world. Absolutely, Sean. I mean, actually, I've always, I've kind of quipped and said Nietzsche was a closet Christian, you know. <laughs> uh, he has some very apt insights, and I would really agree with him on this point, quite honestly. Um, and I'm not the only one. Um, a book by George, I think his name is George Rieger, or Rieger, R-I-E-G-E-R, called Christ and Empire. And he claims that Christianity ended with the rise of Constantine. When Christianity became an official religion, uh, it lost. It, Christianity lost its real meaning. Um, it's it's real, you know. It's this this nexus of divinity and humanity now intertwined in a new power of love, moving us to a new future that was co opted by uh, Greek metaphysics, um, <clears throat> imperial politics, and uh, I had to say it, but religion became an imperial religion. Uh, Christianity became an imperial religion with all the trappings of the court, the imperial court, um, and patriarchy built right into that, right? And so I do think, you know, again, if we could de- deconstruct the imperialism of Christianity and return to the root of the gospel uh, life, which is empowering, and it's not about sin and heaven and hell. The whole point of the New Testament is about future. It's about new creation. It's about God is doing new things. Uh, uh, And that's what we're oriented toward in the New Testament. That's what Jesus is about. A new community that's inclusive, uh, mutual, compassionate, forgiving, peacemaking, um, of shared goods. You know, uh, in a sense, you know, as the saying goes, where love reigns, not love looking at one another, but looking together in the same direction. Uh, and, and therefore, it is an empower. It's, it was meant to be an empowering of life, uh, life now in, in the vision of new life together. But I hate to tell you, Nietzsche was right on that. That <laughs> that vision, that beautiful vision of a God empowered personhood into a new future, uh, really was co opted and, and deconstructed with the rise of formal Christianity in. 313 and then 325. And as the doctrines, it became very abstract, very doctrinal, very, you know, um, even the doctrines themselves. I mean, the doctrine at Nicaea and then Chalcedon, they're abstract. No one knows what it means to say that Jesus Christ is truly God, truly human, one with God and his divinity. One, with, So all the, you know, people are like, what? You know, the Trinity, People are like, what is this, Rubik's Cube? I mean, three persons in one. You know, we have three leaf clovers. And so it's become so, it's become really crazy, quite honestly. (laughs) It doesn't have to be this way. Well, you talk a lot about how God is found in the other. Yes. And the concept of of sacrificial suffering, to use your phrase. What is sacrificial suffering? What does that look like in the world? You know, I I think people are living this all the time. You probably live it in your own daily life, right? Wherever two or more are gathered, you know, first of all, let me just say this. We long, we're we're made, I think I said this before, we're made for relationship, right? Um, Now, it doesn't mean that you always have to be with people. I I think, you know, I want to just qualify that because uh, people can think, oh, I'm made for relationship. I always have to have a friend or buddy. It's, it's the orientation of our personhood, the openness of it to be to others, right? Um, the fact that, you know, I can be at home in myself because I take that first otherness as my own self. Uh, I don't want to dis- discard that, right? So if I'm not at home in my own beingness, where I might say that power of beingness, I take as 
we can call it God, we can call it the one, you know, whatever it is, that inner heart of my heart. Um, And so being at home there in the otherness of my own self, I'm then open to the otherness of uh, whoever I encounter. And it's about encounter and experience. Um, And therefore, I think if I'm if I'm not at home in my own beingness, with my own one oneness, uh, I, I often can reject, you know, whoever I encounter. I find them an obstacle. And the difference is, you might say, to be made for relationship is, do I find other persons to be enriching to my life? Do, do I, um, am I open to what they have to say, whether or not I agree with them? Um, can I see something beautiful in them, even though I find them really to be annoying? You know, um, I don't like the way they talk. I don't like the way they phrase their, you know, idiosyncrasies. Or uh, do I reject them? You know, do I say, this person's really a jerk. I can't stand this person, right? I can't wait till this person disappears. And so I want to cut them out, right? So I want to slice them out of my little world. Um, and, and the more we can find that sense of unity within and without, the more we will move towards a healthier world where we are beginning to see no matter what your race is, your color, your gender, you are, there's a beauty to you as a person. And to meet you is, is really, it's one, it's wonderful because Wow, I never, I never thought about you know gender this way, or I never thought about maybe race in this way. And it's fantastic to hear your stories, to hear your experience. And I think what life is about relationally is dialogue, right? It's a, it's a dialogue. We're two, two logi, so to speak, right? To come together and they interchange. And so I use the word quantum entanglement, right? As we begin to cross our thresholds and enter into the world of the other, we can realize really how how magnificent life can be when we can enter into the world of someone we would maybe otherwise have rejected for for superficial reasons. In the last podcast episode I did on Albert Camus' The Plague, my guest brought up Simone Weil, who I'm sure you've you've heard of, and I cannot sure. help but think of her now. I she was probably, at least in my opinion, maybe the most brilliant philosopher people most people have never heard of. But she was also right. a Christian mystic who Yes, who never became a Christian. Who never became a Christian and who and who I, I think quite literally died imitating Christ. She she, she was someone who essentially starved herself to death standing in solidarity with, with the victims of the war. Yes. Uh, just World War II that is. Mm-hmm. And she had this this concept she called decreation, which sounds a lot like what you're saying now. And it, and it was a, an ethic of attentiveness. And the, the idea was, or her idea, was that you you can draw God downward by emptying the contents of your own consciousness, by 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 pushing out your own ego and and opening yourself up to others otherness if that makes yes. any sense absolutely and it was yeah i mean it it really was a, a theology rooted in in the, in the example of christ and that had absolutely nothing to do with with scripture or dogma or, or anything else and it sounds well, like well, uh, actually, she sounds like yeah. your kind of christian yeah and, and my kind of christian <laughs> she is actually I, I, I like her very much yeah i like somebody very much i, I i'm not a i'm not a somebody scholar but the little that I know is, you know, she she didn't accept. I mean, she didn't become a Christian precisely because uh, the dogmas, uh, the, the laws and all the structures around it actually, in her view, prevented the heart of the matter, which was precisely that the self and the incarn- incarnation is really what spoke to her. But by that, she meant becoming enfleshed with this power of love, you know, called divinity, God. Um, and therefore that... Um, the whole point of Christianity, in a sense, is building is is bridge building that love into those who not you know are, um, uh, in it, for her it was those who were suffering you know those um, the the poor workers in the factories to be in solidarity. Well, this is very scriptural, by the way, because 
you know, in the scriptures, we have God stands on the side of the poor, right? Um, the Anawim, uh, the lowest of the lowest. And what that's saying is God, you know, that power of love comes to where, who, who are the least regarded by culture or the least, you know, notice. And, you know, the whole point of the incarnation, the whole point of Jesus is about us. It's not about so much, you know, what God is doing for us. It's what we are to be doing uh, to for one another as we, in a sense, seek towards that fullness of life in God. And that, I think Simone Ray really understood that. It's like my life only has meaning if it can if it can live out of an abundance of love for another, right? And so that, you know, she used the word metaxis, a bridge, right? And so where we are constantly deconstructing the bridges that might possibly form around us, someone says, you know, I need your help. We're like, no way. You know, I have no time. I'm very busy. Please do not bother me. You know, a a metaxological consciousness says, you're part of me, and I'm, you know, because God, the God in you, the Namaste, the God in you is the God in me, and we are deeply one. We are deeply united in this God, and I am here for you. Um, and that's the type of theology, I think, what Christianity essentially is about. There are some really fantastic people in the world, as we speak, who are living a Simone Vey type of spirituality. We never hear of them. I can tell you about sisters in South America living with the poorest of the poor and they're very joyful people. So because when they, when you live out of that deep center of love and share and you see it in another to be there for the other, it lifts us out of our own, our own layers of egocentricity, which actually we don't like quite honestly, we're the most unhappiest people locked into ourselves. (laughs) And that's why I do think Christianity is a suffering through love and to joy, right? But it is with the other. So you know, they use the the term metaxis, and and you use the phrase the creative dimension of of suffering. And obviously, there's a lot of suffering. There's a around lot of us suffering at the moment, yes. and that's a kind of recurring theme or question of this podcast series is 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 what to do about and with all of that suffering and and so i guess what i'm really asking is how can we create something constructive out of right. all the suffering we're we're encountering now yes right and i think you know i think uh given what we've said here i think the first thing is not to become self-enclosed in our suffering as if no one knows what i'm suffering Right? No one can possibly feel what I'm feeling. Um, when we do that, we cut. We all already cut ourselves off from the pulse of life, uh, and that cutting off ourselves from the pulse of life exacerbates our suffering. If we're suffering physically or mentally, emotionally, it deepens. Um, so I think the first thing we need to do is to lean into our own suffering, to to accept it. I can say embrace it, and that just means. This is where I am. This is this is my real situation right now. But can I find in this real situation a trust that I'm not alone here? That there's a power. There's a power of love, you know, um, that I name as God or whatever you want to name that power of love as. That it empowers me even in this moment, maybe to just open my eyes to whatever I encounter this day. If I encounter another person, can I? Can I share with them what I'm experiencing? Can I ask them what they're experiencing? How do we share together our sufferings? I think that's the second thing. How do we remain open in our suffering so that we don't cut one another off in it, but that we can begin to begin to see, hey, well, I didn't, you know, I'm experiencing this. I didn't realize what you were going through, but having experienced this myself, I now know what you are experiencing and maybe we can maybe together find a way to, to enjoy life, to celebrate life in a way we couldn't do apart. So all that we're saying here is suffering can be a door by which we exit our isolated ego and we enter into the suffering of another 
And that isolated ego can be transformed into what we're really created for. And that is a deep relationship of shared life and being in love. And by creativity in suffering, I mean, maybe there's new ways we can empower one another dealing with racism. I mean, we are dealing with some very big issues right now, right? We're dealing with a global pandemic. We're dealing with global warming. And these things are not going away. In fact, they're getting worse because we're moving, we're moving in the wrong direction. We keep self-isolating, you know, and I don't mean just pandemically. That is a good thing. Social distancing is a good thing. It is more of a structural openness. And I think the first thing is in our own lives, really to embrace the fragility of our own lives. And second, to remain open to those we encounter. And third, I think to love whenever we have the opportunity. And by love, I mean to see the good, right? To see the good in another. I do believe actually that people are good for all the the ills that we have. I do believe there is an essential goodness at the heart of, of our lives. And we have to find new ways to tap into that goodness because look, the more we continue to suffer and beat the drum on the suffering, the more we're inflicting it on one another. So we're, we're kind of perpetuating the crises we find ourselves in. You know, and another way to put this, I mean, another thing I'd like to add here is just slow down. Just slow down. We are on such a treadmill because we're so anxious. We're so distrustful. We're so needy, you know, to get out of our suffering. We're not losing anything by slowing down. What's the big rush? You know, what are we rushing towards? Um, Maybe slowing down and paying attention to what's in our immediate visual field. Who am I encountering in this moment? What do I see out my window? Do I even see that there's a tree there? You know, do I see an animal? Do I see any, anyone or any creature that's suffering? And how do I respond in this moment? So I do think we need to get out of the big picture. You know, we're in this big picture world where big global problems, we're all going to solve them. We're very analytical, very logical. I think we need to move a little bit from the left brain to the right brain, you know, and the right brain is the brain that's attached to the body and the wider world, right? Passion, uh, freedom, uh, the arts, you know, being attentive to the sounds in our midst, the sights in our midst, uh, the sufferings, and maybe summing this up, being attention to this moment. I think we live as if we're going to have a big future before, you know, like, hey, we'll get through this, you know, no problem. We're going to get over this pandemic. We're going to all return to our jobs. I'm like, no, this could all end in the next moment. How do we know that the next moment belongs to us? Nothing belongs to us, right? We really all are, and it's this sense, um, ontologically poor people. We are all dependent on the moment of this moment, right? There's nothing that guarantees that we will live into tomorrow. So why are we so, this was Jesus, right? Why are we so worried about tomorrow? When today is all we really have. This moment is all we really have. In fact, in this moment, right, our lives linger between time and eternity. Stop acting as if the world belongs to us as if it's all going to be at our disposal, because it's not. And I think if we slowed down, we paid attention, and we live in the moment, we actually might come to a more, slightly more sustainable way of life and actually might enjoy one another. When you and I first spoke a few weeks ago on the phone, we talked about Dostoevsky a little bit. Of course, the great Russian Christian existentialist writer, and he was one of the people who really changed how I thought about Christianity or the possibilities of Christianity because for him, and it, it resonates a lot with what you're saying, his Christianity didn't really have much to do with with the historical claims in the Bible. It didn't really matter whether Christ was an actual person who, who died and rose from the dead or any of those things. For him, Christ was a living motive force. And the idea of Christ was much less important than the living faith made possible by belief in Christ. And that exactly. and that living faith was the practice of Christ's love. And that was that's the only it. justification that's it, it needed. And that sounds very much like 
your Christianity. Very much so. You know, and I, I think we have made Christianity is a religion. It's of the person. And we've made Christianity a religion of a book or a law. It's about a person. God, and, and here in sense, we're saying in terms of revelation, God is personal. Uh, that, you know, God doesn't show up as an algorithm. You know, God, God doesn't come as, um, an illegal dispute. God comes in the form of a person. And that's why we have to be, if religion is to have any meaning, it has to be a living God, a God who is alive in our lives. And I would agree. I mean, the rules and, you know, and all the formulas and stuff were really just meant to shape the livingness of God. But we got things really tossed around and we've made the law over the spirit and the, you know, the institution over the person. Um, and it's become a stale and stayed. Law is meant to really guide, right? It's meant to guide life. And what we want is a just and fruitful life. Uh, but when we make law, you know, over person, we're no longer in a living religion with a living God. Now we have some kind of formula of God. So I think what we, in my review or re- remake of Christianity is let's come back to the living God. Let's come back to the livingness of religion as a life, a vital, you know, a vital power that imp- religion should empower us and not stifle us. Uh, and whatever language you want to use here, but the livingness of God is a God who is depth and breath. You know, the horizon that, you know, when we talk about God as a lure or, you know, pulling us, uh, we know that implicitly, whether or not we believe in God, we, we, we know that there's something pulling us. And we give that language of the livingness, of, you know, Christianity, that is what God is about. So, Yes, I would vote 120% for a return of the living God. And we can downplay, quite honestly, a lot of the other stuff. <laughs> well, I'll just say that Christianity, a, a Christianity that compels people to live up, I mean, really live up to the example of, of Christ, to, yes. to help and to heal in the world. That's a Christianity that I can get behind. That's a Christianity that doesn't carry really any metaphysical baggage. It's just, it's, it's, it's just simply a way of, of being and doing in the world that I think would make it better. That's exactly what it is, Sean. I mean, Raban Lull, the Spanish mystic, once wrote, we are born out of love, we exist in love, and we are destined for love. And, you know, if you had to take one word that actually sums up our root existence, it's love. You know, love in in that deepest good and oriented toward that fullness of life, meaning shared beingness in life, sharing that goodness and love. Um, And and I think a lot of my work is really trying to repackage or refashion Christianity back towards a living living God, right, at work in in the livingness of our lives. And maybe we need to, you know, this is rather radical of uh, but maybe we need to deconstruct the Vatican, you know, maybe we need to just go back to local churches where, you know, um, each church finds in its local community uh, the best means to live in just love. Um, uh, we need new ways. We need to be creative about religion. Whatever said, God never said, you must, you must stick with this fossilized patriarchal structure, no matter what. We have this infinite infinite power within us. And our job, our task, and the religious task is to find that power within uh, and to live out of it in a way that leads us to a newness of life, not just the same life. We're not here to survive. We're here to create. And I do think creativity is what marks the human species. Before we go, I do want to ask you what you would say to someone who is struggling to find God in this broken, anxious world who maybe wants to find God, but is looking in all the wrong places. The God we seek out there is the God who is already within here. So the term, the name God points to the root reality first of my own life. 
I think it's recognizing, I mean, to be truthful about myself is to know I am not the master of my own ship, right? That uh, as much as I can seem to be in control, that there's an in, in, ineffable, I can't even describe it at times. There's this depth and, and this horizon of my own life that I need to pay attention to. And that's God. Uh, that is what that name God points to, this depth of love. And love meaning that in the core of my life, there is an essential goodness, that I am good. I may not act so good sometimes, believe me. Uh, and I may do a lot of things that are not so good, but there's an essential good. And the more I can enter into that good, into that love, into that reality of God in my own life, the more that I am opened up to this God um, in the life around me in the world of creation, um, in the beauty of creation, in the beauty of the human person. And then I take that in the beauty of community, um, which is where church, you know, would come in. I would not, uh, our, our, our mistake is to think that we're going to find God in a church. You don't find God in a church. A church actually is sort of the, that that's, shouldn't be the first place. It's, it's actually the last place. Once you have found God, then you are drawn into community to celebrate together this life that is the power of our lives. But we have made church sort of the, um, you know, we lack an autonomy, a religious autonomy, and we've made it like a heteronomy. Like I'm going to look for my authority of God outside me in this church. Uh, no, you're never going to find it there. Because that's not what church is about, right? Church is what, you know, we're called into this celebration together to, to give voice to this power of love that is God, to this power of wisdom that guides us, right? But the first church is within. The New Testament says that. St. Paul writes about this, right? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you don't have to go running off to church. You have to recognize the holiness of your own life. And I think so many people don't even recognize the holiness. Like you are sacred, right? You can't be just bought and sold, right? You can't be just dissed. Um, you you have an ineffable sacredness to your life. If we can if we can discover that and celebrate that, and and in a sense have faith in that in our own lives, I think that liberates us to open our eyes uh, to the lives around us. We've reached the end of our our conversation here. But I, I just want to say I really enjoyed this exchange with you. And I, I think the world is is better for having committed, faithful people like you in it. And I very much appreciate your time. Thank you, Sean. It's great to be with you. Sister Elia Delia, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like today's show, make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And of course, please share with your friends and family. It really helps. If you'd like to offer feedback about this podcast, I'd love to hear it. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Illing, or you can email me at Sean.Illing at Vox.com. Our producer and editor is Jackson Bierfeldt. The show is edited by Albert Ventura. Our executive producer is Liz Nelson, and this show is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Visit vox.com slash podcast to find more of our shows.